Well, amen indeed. What a beautiful selection of songs, really, to lead us in worship. Good to see you all. Trust that you're enjoying summer and all the blessings of God's creation. Uh, wonderful to be here with you. A privilege, really, to be gathered together corporately, to be able to open the Word of God unhindered and uh, sit under uh, its authority. Because as church history has always testified, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And so we have the privilege to hear from God through His Word. I recall being asked to open a ceremony in prayer. And as part of my prayer, I thank the Lord for His providence over the institution. And afterwards, a sincere young pastor came to me asking about that P word that I used and how cool it was and asked what it meant. And I was kind of taken aback, but grateful all the same. And that P word was providence. And providence has been rightly defined where God with wisdom and love cares for and directs all things and is in complete control of all things, including the universe as a whole, including the physical world, the affairs of nations, mankind's successes and failures, and the protection of His people. The first occurrence of the word providence in Scripture is when Abraham, in Genesis chapter 22, resolved in his heart to obey God by sacrificing his own son Isaac up on that mountain. And do you recall what young Isaac said to his dad as they were preparing to go up to the mountain to offer a sacrifice. Isaac, Isaac said in Genesis chapter 22 verse 7 to his father, Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb? And to which Abraham his father replied, you know this, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham was talking there about how God would provide for his people not a pleasant life, not a life of ease or comfort, but a lamb, a perfect spotless sacrificial lamb. And God did so right in the sending of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we worship. And so providence speaks of God providing for the needs of His people. We call this divine providence. And divine providence also includes God preserving His creation and operating in each and every event in the world, all while directing all things in the world to His intended outcome. God has an intended outcome and His providence sustains and ensures that His intended outcome will occur. Nothing will thwart that at all. God's providence has as its scope, and I drew this portion here from that wonderful systematic theology, biblical doctrine, that God's providence encompasses, as we've said, the universe as a whole, the physical realm of time and space, all of the animals, the birth and life of males and females, all of mankind's successes and failures, all things seemingly mundane and unimportant, Protection for his people, the answering of prayers, provision for his people, and the judgment of the wicked. Theologically, there's a fine distinction in providence, that of God's general providence, where he controls and upholds the entire universe, and then God's specific providence, where in controlling the universe, he does so in every single detail, including the details of history and the details of every single individual person, yep, you and me, especially according to Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 12, especially the elect, especially those adopted in as his children by grace by his love. And so providence, namely divine providence from God, is most worthy of praise. It's most worthy to shout joyfully about God's providence. 
And the more you dwell upon God's providence, both in the life of his people throughout time and your own life, the louder you shout and the more you joy. We're told in Scripture that God the Son, the Lord Jesus, upholds the entire universe by the word of his power. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. And that in Christ all things, not some things, in Christ all things hold together. Colossians 1 17. Acts chapter 17 verse 28 tells us that it is in God that we live and move and have our being. So we praise God. For from him comes all things. And governance of all things. Including our very lives. We praise him because as we study who he is. And what he does. We learn more and more that he is most worthy of praise. And that is why it's important that we understand what it means to praise God. And to praise God means to speak forth and proclaim His attributes and character and His works, His deeds as all beautiful and all satisfying. God is most worthy of us ascribing glory due His name. Psalm 66, which I want us to journey through this morning, is a psalm where the providence of God is set before us in such a way where we are compelled to savor it. Rejoicing in our God, who is indeed our God of providence, being moved to praise Him with our mouths and also our minds. Also our minds. As we live our lives striving for greater and greater manifestations of holiness, we do so as an act of worship lived in light of the grandeur and the greatness and the glory of our God. And so turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 66 and let's read that psalm together. For the choir director, a song, a psalm. Verse 1, shout joyfully to God all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Make His praise glorious. Say to God... How awesome are your works because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. All the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name, Selah. Verse five, come and see the works of God. Who is awesome in his deeds towards the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There let us rejoice in him. He rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious nations exalt themselves. Selah. Bless our God, O peoples, and sound his praise abroad. Who keeps us in life and does not allow our foot, our feet to slip. For you have tried us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. You laid an oppressive burden upon our loins. You made men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you brought us out into a place of abundance. I shall come into your house with burnt offerings. I shall pay you my vows, which my lips uttered and my mouth spoke when I was in distress. I shall offer to you burnt offerings of fat beasts with the smoke of rams. I shall make an offering of bulls with male goats, Selah. Come and hear all who fear God. 
And I will tell you of what He has done for my soul. I cried to Him with my mouth, and He was extolled with my tongue. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But certainly God has heard. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, who has not turned away my prayer, nor his loving kindness from me. Let's pray. Father, we come having just read a monumental portion of your written word. We thank you for it. We trust that it is profitable. We believe all Scripture to be inspired and sufficient. Lord, we sit under its authority. We come rejoicing in the truth contained within. We ask that you would bless us now. Aid us by your Spirit. Sanctify your precious people and save those that are lost here this morning. We give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. I've broken up the psalm into five parts, five parts, each highlighting for us who our God is and providing the fitting response from us to who he is. If you're taking notes in Psalm 66 this morning, we will sing his praise in verses one through four. We will see his works in verses five through seven. We will savior, savor His providence in verses 8 through 12. Sanctify His worship in verses 13 through 15. And speak of His grace in verses 16 through 20. We'll touch on each of those as we go along again, if you didn't catch all of that. But let's allow the Word of God now, by the Spirit of God, to do a work in our hearts to the praise and glory of God. The first of five parts to this psalm is the call to, number one, sing His praise. The superscription there, which are those little words above verse 1, they're quite fitting for such an opening point as sing His praise. For they explain that this psalm, look there in your Bible, it says, for the choir director, a song, a psalm. I find that intriguing because a psalm is a song. Two different Hebrew words, both with the same meaning. It means the same thing. A song, a song. But when you look back up at the last verse of Psalm 65, which is verse 13 of Psalm 65, look there. The meadows are clothed with flocks and the valleys are covered with grain. They shout. For joy, yes, they sing. They sing. And then when you read verse 1 of Psalm 66, shout joyfully to God, all the earth. Verse 2, sing the glory of His name. It makes sense that this is all quite festive and joyous. The last verse of Psalm 65 speaks of the land singing. And now Psalm 66 is a call for the entirety of humanity on that land to sing. But let me ask you a question. Do the mountains and the moon and the sun and the stars and the flowers and rivers and sweeping valleys, do they ever need to be encouraged and urged and motivated and moved and spurred on to praise God, ever urging to sing God's glory and beauty? Do they ever need that? No, they do that already. Did any of you see the sky last night? We did on our way back from Waimarama. It was incredible. It was singing. It was shouting the character of God. And people may ask, well, what's God like? What's His character like? Well, the sky last night and... 
creation itself was revealing that his character is beautiful, splendorous. For humanity, however, that's you and I, we need to be ever reminded, ever urged to praise God. Ever provoked, ever prompted to speak forth and proclaim His attributes and His character and His works as all beautiful and all satisfying to the soul. We don't know who penned this psalm, but we do know that they were so caught up in the goodness and greatness and grandeur of God. That they have been divinely inspired to inspire us. To sing joyfully and shout praise to God. But why? Why do so? Just because? No. Verse 3 tells us why. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. This tells us that to sing God's praise is not some mindless thing. Sadly, sometimes it is. Both in our hearts and minds, if we come to church unprepared in our own hearts to worship. But also when the singing of his praise is not fueled by facts, not fueled by doctrine, not fueled by the truth of who God is. And my deep concern for the church at large is that so many sing praise to God from very shallow waters and shallow water when stirred is nothing but froth and bubbles. You've heard me say this countless and countless times that the height of our worship, the height of our praise, the height of our ascribing to God, the glory due his name is in direct correlation with the depth of our knowledge of God. Verse 3 gives us the facts, gives us the fuel and the truth to sing His praise, to proclaim His praise. Not with mindless mouthing, but with knowledge that drives praise to God. I love how instructive even the beginning of verse 3 is. Look there. Say to God. Go on. Do it. The psalmist is saying. Not to me or anyone else. Say to God, how awesome are your works. We don't do that much, do we? That's altogether another level. How awesome is God, we say. That is wonderful and worthy. How awesome are you, O God? That is epic and enthralling. There's two components in verse 3. How awesome are your works? So works is one and then faked obedience. But before we look at those, I want you to see the Psalms major movements of praise. This will aid us to pull in all the aspects of this. So we see that there is both a corporate, meaning collective community aspect to this and as well as a personal aspect to this. You see, we don't live this Christian life on an island. We do at the same time, though, live this Christian life as individuals. That is to say, we live out this Christian life all as individuals, yet we do so as individuals in a community, a new covenant community, a family. And that dynamic itself moves and motivates us to be thanksgiving and praise offering people. You see, the psalm opens with a call, as we've just seen, to the entire world to praise God. Meaning it's evangelistic to some degree. Why? Because all the earth, meaning every nation, and not every nation acknowledges or serves the one true God as king and creator. And so the psalm begins that way. That's the first movement. 
Another movement is it moves from the entire world to the praise of just a single nation, specifically the nation of Israel. And then the psalm ends, as we'll see, with the praise of a single individual. And so that's the movement from universal to national to individual. We live in the world. We're called to shout and sing as to make his praise glorious. We live as the people of God called to make his praise glorious. And we live as individuals called to make his praise glorious. Glorious. And so the psalm starts off broad and then it narrows as it goes along, concluding, as I said, in the single response of a believer who is committed and commissioned to tell of what God has done for their soul. The works that God has done for their soul. And that's what really is meant in part in verse three concerning how awesome are your works say to God how awesome are your works what are these awesome works that the psalmist is speaking of here well like David and Asaph and other psalm writers this psalmist whoever it was would have known the Old Testament scriptures and certainly the awesome works of Genesis 1 1 would have certainly come to mind In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. By the word of his power, that's an awesome work indeed. No doubt the flood would be on the psalmist's mind too. That was a great work of judgment. Certainly the mighty deliverance of Israel was on this psalmist's mind where God displays his immense greatness in contrast to that of the pagan gods who possess no greatness at all waters parting and the protection of Israel against all those who rose up against them and against God surely by this God's greatness was on display in fact that exact work of God is mentioned in this psalm in verse 6 but the list could go on and on for there is no end to God's greatness and his awesome works his infinite awesomeness and greatness is incomprehensible to our finite minds it was augustine who said of god's awesome works quote i see the depths but i cannot get to the bottom end quote surely too god's wonderful works here includes the work that god does in the heart of his people when he draws each individual member of his chosen people to himself, and then he applies to them in the work of regeneration all the merits of Jesus Christ, earned for us in Jesus' living and dying and rising on our behalf. When God saved you and I, he worked an awesome work in our hearts, bringing us from death to life, We praise God for that. Never let that wander by. We can shout joyfully to God for that. And so here in the opening verses, it's more evangelistic of sorts. It's a call to the world in light of how great the one true God is amongst a a host of false gods. It's a call to come and enjoy him. the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever and that's what the second thing we see in verse 3 evidences look at the end of verse 3 now because of your greatness of your power your enemies will give feigned obedience to you because of God being praised for His awesomeness, His power is extolled and lifted up. And the result is that even unbelieving enemies will submit to Him. But notice that it's not true, heart-wrought obedience, but feigned, meaning phony obedience. What that means is that when God's power is displayed, 
people who are unregenerate, not born again, outside of the covenant, they will be struck by his awesomeness and reluctantly in their hearts pay homage to him. We see this, I believe, in those that enjoy in our community and culture strong moral values. But in their hearts, they they reject the lordship of Jesus Christ. Conservatives without Christ, we could say. In the coming future judgment, there will be many who reject the Son of God wholesale. But there will also be those who have given phony allegiance to Him. And so these are allusions to the future. And verse 4 now really stresses that. Allusions to the future. Look at verse 4. All the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name. Will. In a day to come. Your translation may not have it in the future tense, but in the present tense. The Hebrew word there does allow for a present tense and a future tense. And so the word is best interpreted in light of the context. And I think you will agree with me that at present, all the earth does not worship the one true God and Jesus whom he sent. But as all the nations are gathered in Jerusalem in a coming future day, when they all sing praises to God in Christ Jesus as he rules and reigns on the earth, What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful coming reality that'll be. Not too far away. Here on the earth in the millennial kingdom. Living under Christ's rule. Where he is literally with us on earth for a thousand years. And we are literally worshipping him. And so the psalm opens with this call to sing his praise. The second call of Psalm 66 is, number two, see his works in verses 5 through 7. First there was this call to sing, and now there is a call to see. And in verses 5 through 7, the psalmist is doubling down on why God is worthy of worship. And again, the focus is on God's works and God's deeds. Verse 5 Come and see the works of God, who is awesome in his deeds towards the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. And so here now is a call to consider the saving works of God. That God has performed for his people, specifically here, the nation of Israel. Verse 6 says, God turned the sea into dry land and they passed through on foot. This is a recollection of when God delivered the nation of Israel from the Egyptian army at the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 4 unfolds all that. Let me read verse 1 of Exodus 14. It says this, Moses reached out with his hand over the sea, and Yahweh swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The nation of Israel passed through safely. And so the works of God in the deliverance of his beloved Israel certainly evidences God's greatness and power. And that power... And that might of God extends to all His rule over all things, including all the areas of challenge in your own personal life this very moment. The power and might displayed at the Red Sea extends all the way to this present day. In all the challenges in your personal life right now. And in our nation's life. 
and the life of the nations we share commonality with as we watch the major Western nations abandon God and usher in a new world. Attempting to anyway. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. God is ruling and reigning and still exercising his greatness and power. He is still delivering his, his people, you and I, from trouble. And even as the nations in the West seem to be rising up against him and his people, remember verse 7 and don't forget it. He rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious nations exalt themselves. Selah. Let that sink in. He miraculously delivers his people from danger and he's watching over the rebellious nations. Nations like New Zealand. Nations like Australia. And so forth. He, he will not let the rebellious nations ultimately exalt themselves. He will and does rule and reign. Let us rejoice in Him for that. You and I today, while we did not cross those parted waters like Israel did, and we did not find delivery from the Egyptian army, we were delivered from the army of the devil. Someone say Amen. We were delivered from our sins penalty through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ who carried His cross up to Calvary and bore the wrath for us and purchased redemption and righteousness for us. Let us rejoice in Him. And so after the singing and after the seeing, comes third, the call to number three, savor his providence in verses eight through 12, savor his providence. This is still in the national portion of the psalm where the psalmist is fixed on Israel. And you see now in verses eight through 12, the change in language, change in language. Just a few examples. Bless our God. Our God, verse 8, you have tried us, O God, verse 10, you have made men ride over our heads, verse 12. And so here the psalmist is recounting in almost a poetic way how God has delivered the nation of Israel so often. He kept our feet from slipping, verse 9. That's a reference to falling into the grave and dying. He refined us like silver, verse 10. A reference to just how a metal worker heats up precious metals to remove all the impurities from it. So too God, in all their trials, was working for their ultimate good, burning away the dross. In their heartache and pain, God was working a greater good. He, he took them into the net, verse 11. Uh, the net means a snare of imprisonment, jail. As the nation of Israel was being held captive as prisoners of war, burdens laid on their backs as they were forced into slavery in Egypt. He made... Men ride over their heads, verse 12. That means as the foreign armies came on horseback, they rode over the heads of the fallen soldiers of Israel. And then look at the middle of verse 12. We went through fire and through water. Going through fire and water is a Hebraic metaphor for going through immense trial and immense trouble. The middle of verse 12 sums it all up. The nation of Israel's history. They went through immense difficulty. Yet, look at the end of verse 12. Yet you 
brought us out into a place of abundance. You see, dear brothers and sisters, God's providence includes both smiles and frowns. Smiles and frowns. His providence is sweet and sometimes bitter. Because remember, it's not just the good things that come from God. God is always working His providence. He is always working, always refining. Always carrying us through the fire and the water. Only our good and great and powerful God can carry us through the deep waters and still keep the fire alight. With God, that flickering candlelight is never fully extinguished. He never abandons us in the deepest of waters and the darkest of valleys. He takes us through them for our good and for His glory as we face things that only He can get us through. God brings us through as the shepherd He is. And it says at the end of verse 12, into a place of abundance. This really echoes Psalm 23 verse 5. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. The word abundance there in verse 12 is the Hebrew word that means overflows. While life at times may be hard, and while life can go from hard to extremely hard, and when things seem beyond your ability to handle them, and they will and they do, because I just want to say something here at, right now. The, the belief that God does not give us more than we can handle is just so wrong. And it is just so commonly said, by Christians, but it is so wrong. God certainly does at times give us much more than we can handle. The Apostle Paul said himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 8, we do not want you to be unaware. Nice way of saying ignorant. We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers and sisters, of our affliction which occurred in Asia. Listen to this. That we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Even of life. And turn with me to First Peter for a moment. First Peter, and as you are, I want to tell you there are so many wonderful resources on the Psalms, and one of those is the ministry of Don Green. Don Green has a treasure trove that he's released online of works on the Psalms, and I'm indebted to him in this study of Psalm 66 and other Psalms. But take a look at verse 6 of First Peter, chapter 1. In this, you greatly rejoice. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, implying that there will be times when it is necessary, 
You have been distressed by various trials. In this you greatly rejoice. Look at verse 7. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. May be found to result in praise. And so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. There's a purpose to the trials. The pattern for how God works in His people from the nation of Israel to us, His new covenant children. He works in us by bringing difficulty that weans us from ourselves. And causes us to look to Him. And as we do, what do we see? We see His hand of deliverance. His providential hand in our own individual experiences. And as hard as things may be right now, hold on. Lean on Him. Don't ever forget, Jesus, the Good Shepherd, has lived and died for you so that we may ever live and not die. And He is walking you home. He's walking you home. And on the other side of the fire and the water is an abundance. Not of wealth, Not of prosperity necessarily, but of peace and joy and satisfaction from our God in Christ. Now in the psalm, things begin to turn from national to individual. So back to Psalm 66 with me. From national now to individual. As the psalmist now responds to the delivery God makes to those who trust Him in the fires and waters of life. Do you trust Him in the fires and waters of life? Or do you trust Him only when things are good? Do you trust Him at all? Point number four is the call to sanctify his worship. Now, sanctify his worship in verses 13 to 15. Here is the response to such deliverance by God. Look at verse 13. I shall come into your house with burnt offerings and I shall pay you my vows, which my lips uttered and my mouth spoke when I was in distress. He's saying when I was being crushed and afflicted, I said something like this, Lord, help me. Lord, help me and deliver me, and then I will publicly worship, worship you and publicly testify that you are my God and that you are worthy of my life. Help me and I will give you my life. Therefore, verse 15, I shall offer to you burnt offerings of fat beasts with the smoke of rams, I shall make an offering of bulls with male goats, Selah. Notice in verse 15 there that there is more than just one animal being sacrificed. There's a host of animals. There's fat beasts, rams, bulls, male goats. The Old Testament Jewish sacrificial system was the offering of animals. And here the psalmist who was living under that Old Testament sacrificial system system is coming out of 
immense gratitude for all that God has done for him and offering an overwhelmingly exuberant offering. This is the fitting response, isn't it? Such immense delivery met with such immense gratitude. We don't live, obviously, in the days of animal sacrifice any longer. And why don't we live in the days of animal sacrifice any longer? I'll tell you why. Because the final, perfect, spotless Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus, has been slain on our behalf. And it is we, we who have trusted in that finished work of the Lord Jesus on our behalf and who have now rested from trying to save ourselves by our own works and instead rested fully on his works on our behalf who have been delivered from the penalty and power of sin and death. And therefore, it is we who ought to come with such an immense offering in light of such an immense delivery. But it is not the offering of bulls and rams and goats, but the offering of our very lives. As we live our lives satisfied in Him, speaking forth and living as though his attributes and his character and his works are all beautiful and all satisfying to our soul. Where in light of an abundance of mercies that have been displayed upon us, that have been shown by God in Christ, we offer up our own lives as living sacrifices knowing full well that that is the only reasonable act of worship in light of such delivery and such abundance that we have received in the Lord Jesus Christ I will sanctify worship by living a life of praise and obedience to him he's worthy He's worthy not just of my Sunday morning. He's worthy of my entire life. And the outcome, and the only response to all of this is the fifth and final call now, the fifth and final point. Look at verse 16 under the heading where we now speak of His grace. The outcome of all of that is, look at verse 16, come and hear. Come and hear, all who fear God, and I will tell you of what He's done for my soul. I'll now speak of His grace. Verse 17, I cried to Him with my mouth and He was extolled with my tongue, meaning I cried out to God in my trials. The trials were incredibly hard, but in the midst of the pain, I did not ignore Him, but I praised Him. I praised him as I trusted in his goodness. Verse 18, because in verse 18, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. The psalmist here is highlighting that there must be a sincerity and holiness in your life. Verse 18 is marvelous. I'll tell you for why. Our lives can't be living in sin matched with, oh, how I love him. It cannot be that way. Jesus said to me, well, Jesus said, everyone will come to me. Many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, emphatically declaring that Jesus is their Lord. And Jesus will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Why? Because they lived as though I never gave them a law to obey. 
It cannot be living in sin matched with, oh, how I love him. No, there must be a pursual of holy living out of gratitude for his love for me in Christ. Do not understand this as do more law better. Understand is this as behold the Son more and you will be growing in gratitude and therefore growing in holiness. When that is the case, look at verse 19. When we're not regarding iniquity and we're pursuing holiness, certainly God has heard, verse 19. Certainly is heard. He's given heed to the voice of my prayer. And then it all ends. It all ends. With a single individual who has seen the worthiness of God and the greatness of God and the character of God and the attributes of God and the works of God as all beautiful and all satisfying, even through the deep waters and the refiner's fire. It all ends with verse 20. Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer, nor his loving kindness from me. That's what undergirds it all. Loving kindness. We spoke about it last Sunday and in times past. Chesed. Loyal, covenant-keeping, special love. Five calls. Five calls from Psalm 66. For you and I to live and apply to our life. It's my prayer that I apply what I have just preached to my own heart and life. And it's my ongoing prayer that what I've just preached, you will apply to your own life and heart. That God gets all the glory and we enjoy Him forever. Let's pray. Father, we come before You and give You great thanks for this time. Lord, I pray for any souls here that haven't found their rest in You, that they would finally find their rest, ceasing from their own works and resting in the works of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, would you be so kind from the overflow of your loving kindness to draw lost sinners to yourself this day, that as they sit even now, they commit their life to you, that they trust in you, in your death, in your burial, and in your resurrection, and that they find in you peace and hope and joy. I pray, Father, that you'd be with us that you would take what has happened here this morning, all of it, and that you would apply all of it to our life. And that we would live singing and seeing and savoring and sanctifying and speaking of who you are and what you've done. And all God's people said, Amen.